Galatians chapter number 5, and uh, I was told I need to get started because you'll see our handouts a little longer tonight. Um, I'll try to keep a steady pace, but it's mainly because I included lots of definition uh, and reference in there, so uh, we'll tr- it'll be about the same, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, but uh, Galatians 5, and we're going to look at verse 19 through verse 26, and uh, tonight we're going to uh, do a brief study here on the contrast of the flesh and the spirit. And uh, I think this is a, a, a good study for us as Christians that we need to um, frequent, I guess, uh, as this contrast of the flesh and the spirit, it really is an ongoing uh, thing in the Christian life in which we're at war with. And uh, so let's, let's look at Galatians 5 and read our text, and we'll, we'll dive into it together. Uh, Paul's writing to the churches in Galatia, and I think we're familiar, most of us probably, with what's going on in Galatia with the Judaizers and emphasizing uh, justification and the need for the law of Moses and in, in, in aspect of that. Uh, but he gets into the practical after he's defended justification by faith alone and shows the spiritual work of uh, the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. And here's what he says. He says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another." This passage is very practical uh, for us in the Christian life. We see essentially a warfare uh, that we as Christians are engaged in, uh, a battle of two opposing sides, and I think we all will identify with that struggle uh, of our fleshly nature versus the new nature we have in Christ, that is the new man um, in the spirit. And uh, we see this in many things in life that we're at battle with and Uh, But essentially, when it boils down to it, we see the Christian life is there is a warfare that goes on, and we are urged by Paul here to walk by the Spirit or walk in the Spirit. Now, verse 16 and 17 really lays that out. He says, again, I say, walk in the Spirit or walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In verse 17, he says, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so I think we all would identify with that as Christians. We understand that uh, once we are born again, that doesn't mean that we're instantly perfected. Uh, We are not perfect beings. We still have that nature of Adam in us. uh, But the difference is we now have the Holy Spirit within us, indwelling us, by which we can live Uh, unto God as we ought to, and uh, walk in the Spirit and overcome our flesh. Uh, So one side here, you see the flesh is pulling at you while you have the Spirit who is seeking to lead you in the way that God would have you to go, and these two are opposed to each other. 
Now, I want us to look and kind of just break down overall what we see here with the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit and um, an application for us at the end. So notice with me in our notes tonight, we'll see firstly the works of the flesh. Uh, the works of the flesh. And I want you to notice a couple things about them. The first thing I want you to notice is that they are descriptive of the sinful nature. They are descriptive of the sinful nature. They describe uh, much of what our sinful nature brings out. Now, when it comes to sin, there's probably a couple ways we could uh, view it. Uh, We may view it in a general sense, as in, well, all people are sinners. That's a general sense of saying, yes, we are all fallen, we're all sinful, we've all uh, broken the law of God. Uh, As 1 John 3, 4 tells us, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. Sin is transgression of the law. And we know that's true. We know that's revealed in the Word of God. So this is really what you could say the works of the flesh in a general sense would be. They are the transgressions against God's law. They are the acts of our sinful nature that we have in Adam. That would be a general way of putting it. But when we look at what Paul's bringing out here, we realize that beyond just the general scope of sin, that sins have names. There are specific sins that uh, Scripture lays out to us uh, that I think that it should be recognized by us. Sins must be recognized. And Paul says these works of the flesh, uh, he details them, and he tells us also in verse 19, he says they are evident. They're evident. Well, when something's evident, it's easily known, easily recognized. They're manifested. They're not something you have to really search real hard for. It's pretty easy to find and see these things, whether in ourselves or in other people. And uh, so there's where we find the deeds of the flesh. I want to break these down for a moment and just look at them, and then we'll come to the fruit of the Spirit side of this and just look at the contrast together. Now, what does he, what does he show us here that the works of the flesh manifest? Well, the very first one he lists here in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, and the first one is sexual immorality. Now, this is what is sexual immorality? It is committing sexual acts outside of the covenant bond of marriage. Um, the Greek word here, pornea, which is the word that which we get our English word pornography from, and we know that that is a very immoral uh, sexual industry that uh, I wish would be abolished altogether, much like abortion. Uh, but it's it's an evil form of sexual perversion that the Lord, that the uh, that, that Satan has invented in this world through mankind. But essentially, pornea here, it's any form of unlawful sexual activity. That includes fornication, adultery, homosexuality, uh, bestiality, prostitution, um, anything that's outside of what God has ordained sex to be. And what we find in our own culture is that that is probably one of the most rampant sins, is sexual immorality. Uh, It's really looked at as just a normal aspect of society uh, in its various forms. Uh, whether it's just the hookup culture of, well, I should sleep with whoever I'd like to, uh, to homosexuality, it's being, you know, pushed out. It's no longer a private thing. It's an open, flaunted thing. Uh, it's a manifestation of the flesh and uh, the sinful nature of man. Uh, but we know that God's design uh, for sex that he, that he created is between the bonds of a man and woman in the covenant of marriage. Uh, Paul urged the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, he said, This is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. So that is the contrast there. Uh, That is a work of the flesh. Then he mentions there is uncleanness. Well, that can refer to sexual sin, but also any form of immoral uh, impurity morally. Now, in Scripture, this word uh, is used both for moral and ceremonial uncleanness. So it's impurity of any kind. It's used in both references. But essentially, it's any impurity that prevents one from approaching God. Uh, So even beyond the realm of sexual impurity, there's other forms of impurity. Then he says sensuality. This is another work of the flesh. Sensuality. This word has the definition of this, and I think I listed this in your notes from the uh, BDAG uh, Greek lexicon. It says a lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable, self-abandonment. And that's, it's essentially, it's, it's unrestrained indulgence um, and largely used in a sexual sense. It refers to uninhibited sexual indulgence without shame, and without concern for what others think or how it may be affected or affect others. So uh, it's just very, very bold, uh, very uh, unrestrained activity. Uh, then we move on here to this, what, what Paul says, these works of the flesh. He mentions idolatry. Now, John MacArthur kind of summarizes these into three categories, sexual, religious, and then relational and reforms of uh, fellow man, relation to fellow man. Uh, and so the first ones we've seen here refer largely to sexual impure sins, uh, but then we see some that are somewhat religious in nature, and idolatry certainly is one of them. And idolatry would be the worship of other gods or images, and in today's sense we could say it's bowing before anything or anyone uh, besides the one true God, uh, including self. Uh, we live in a culture that self is one of the greatest idols uh, the idolatry of self is, is very, very much promoted uh, in our society. And uh, so idolatry takes many forms. And idolatry is essentially putting things before God, replacing what belongs to God uh, with something else. And so uh, idolatry is a work of the flesh. And then we see the word sorcery. Uh, this is a work of the flesh, which essentially, sorcery refers to magic. Now, it comes from a Greek word, pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy from. Uh, that doesn't mean that all pharmacy medicines are, are evil or works of the flesh, but there is a root to why that is. Uh, in the ancient world, witches often prepared and administered lethal poisons. And uh, really a, a postmodern uh, parallel to that form of witchcraft would include abortion and euthanasia, forms of killing that often require doctors. Uh, that is one way you could look at this. Uh, MacArthur notes this in reference to pharmakia. He says, many ancient religious ceremonies involved occultic practices in which drugs were used to induce supposed communication with deities. And pharmakia thereby became closely related to witchcraft and magic. Um, He also notes that Aristotle and other ancient Greek writers used the word as a synonym for witchcraft and black magic because drugs were so commonly used in their practice. And, and so you see there's, there's evil roots to what this would be as magic and, and sorcery and uh, in the realm of using it even in uh, a false me- a medical way. Uh, so the practices of magic, um, that's, that's kind of a common thing in our culture too, uh, magic. But it is a work of the flesh. It's not of God. It is, it is, it is really a form of worship 
uh, in one way or another. And then you have another category which would relate to more human relationships, and we can see these very plainly as we see the seventh, uh, seventh work of the flesh. He says enmity. Work of the flesh is enmity. Well, what is enmity? Well, it's hostility or hatred towards one another. What does the Bible describe us as before Christ? We were at enmity with God, right? We were hostile. Uh, we had a hatred for God, even though we may not have realized our hatred for God. It was, it was, it was cloaked by our own self-righteousness. And, and so we see enmity, which is hostility or hatred towards others. Uh, if, we, if we manifest such a thing, uh, that's a work of the flesh. And we see that in our world, in our culture, a hatred towards others. You have strife. One of the works of the flesh is strife. Uh, a strife is discord or contention. Um, the Galatians, they were expressing some of this between themselves uh, as there was a lot of strife and contention over uh, the Judaizers and what they were bringing in. If you look at verse 15, now Paul warns them about this. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Uh, that's really a, a manifestation of strife and contention among uh, them. We have jealousy. Jealousy. Jealousy is intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. That's the definition given there. Um, it's very closely related to envy, as you'll see later. Uh, but jealousy is a uh, work of the flesh. That um, comes natural to us. Uh, just watch two little kids that both want the same toy to play with. And uh, you see the work of the flesh evident in, uh, in precious little children. And uh, they're, they're jealous, they're envious, they're, they, get, they get mad at each other with these things. So that's what comes from our nature. Uh, closely related to that, too, is fits of anger. Fits of anger, that's an in intense expression of anger and rage and indignation. Um, that is so evident in, in humanity. There's rivalries, which are contentiousness and selfish ambition. Uh, that often finds its way into the church. Uh, in which God's people have to be mindful of, that we're not in competition with other believers in any way. Uh, we are all on the same team. God saved us by the same grace, and uh, he's using us in, as he sees fit for his glory. Uh, we see dissensions here. Dissensions are discord and division. All right? That's, that's evident. Then we have another word, which is division. This is also translated as heresies in, in some translations, but it refers to a group that holds to tenets distinctive to it. So that could be a, a group that maybe has developed a false teaching or a theological error, or maybe they just have a different way about them in which they've divided themselves from other believers. They've divided themselves from being unified with the people of God. And so what we find is that there was, that was taking place in Galatia. You had the Judaizers who had separated themselves and were saying that we need Moses as part of our justification. And there was others who said, no, it's only of grace in Christ. And so there was this faction, there was this division uh, and heresy going on. Then we have envy. That's just another general form of jealousy towards others. Uh, you'll find a textual variant here where some translations also include murders, uh, which is killing another unlawfully. Obviously, that is, uh, that is a work of the flesh, murdering. Then you have drunkenness. Drunkenness, which is unrestrained alcohol intake, being a drunk. And then lastly, you have orgies, which refers to excessive feasting. And particularly, uh, you'll find in that day and time, pagan worship ceremonies were full of that. 
in which it was part of their worship of excessive feasting and uh, in their worship of false gods. And now that can also broadly refer to uh, anything excessive, uncontrolled pleasure in alcohol, food, or sex, or whatever uh, you want to mention. Uh, but so all these works of the flesh, I, I give these so you kind of get an idea of, of what Paul is saying here. But understand that the list Paul gives here, it's not exhaustive of the works of the flesh. That's not like this is the final list. Uh, you'll notice what Paul says in verse 21. He says, and things like these. So that, that puts the umbrella in a lot wider scope. It's not just these things that Paul is mentioning. He's broadening out, and things like these. These are all works of the flesh. Now, now we may look at this list and wonder, why do people do these things? Well, the answer is because our own fleshly nature, it is evil. It is evil. It all, all of this sin, all of these works of the flesh, they flow from our depraved nature in Adam. I, I want to turn and reference this from Mark, where some words that Jesus had mentioned when he was speaking in Mark chapter 7 and verse 20 through verse 23 for a moment. Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 23. Uh, you know, remember that uh, some had got on to him and his disciples about uh, not washing their hands and being defiled and, and um, before eating. And notice, notice what he says. He makes this plain to them. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So we realize that the defilement, the evil that man manifests, it's not something that he had taken in it made him that way it's something that flows from his nature um, as Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it uh, so these evil acts these works of the flesh they're descriptive of the sinful nature but notice with me secondly in, in this heading is that they are destructive to all sinners and here's where we see the great warning from Paul all right great warning here he says in verse 21 in the latter part of that verse he says I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's talking about being part of that kingdom, which is uh, Christ's kingdom. We know that as Christians, when we're born again, we enter into his kingdom. We're a part of his kingdom. Uh, but it also includes the eternal state, the eternal aspect of his kingdom. And so that would be essentially what we would look forward to as, as believers. But let's pause there for a moment. We look at this list of sins, this list of works of the flesh. Is there anyone who has never had one of these sins in their life? Every single one of us. As we look at this list, we're all guilty of at least one, probably far more than just one. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Because he says those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the key word here is do. It refers to an ongoing action, the practice of one's life. And so what Paul is describing is this. This is categorically how the lost world lives their life. They live in this way. They practice this way. Uh, this is what they do in their life. These sins, these lists of sins, they characterize the lost sinner who does not have the Spirit of God within them. They are under the control of their flesh, under the control of sin. And so this is really where we see the emphasis here with these sins. 
They categorize evil in our old nature. Now, there's essentially two possible views of man nature before Christ. And here's the world's view. The world sees man as basically good. Basically good. Now, we know, according to Scripture, that that is uh, in great error, right? Um, Romans 7 and verse 18, Paul himself said, uh, the great apostle Paul that we read wrote majority of the New Testament, says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. You read Romans 17, he describes this, this, this struggle, this battle of flesh versus uh, the inward man. And so he says, nothing good dwells in me. And I think we all would have to attest to that. Nothing good dwells in me. Uh, I will openly say that anything good in me is only of Christ. I can claim nothing of it. Uh, and all the bad, it's my fault. <laughs> all the bad is of me. Uh, and so that, that brings us to the actual understanding of man's nature. He's not basically good. He's basically evil. That's his, that's his nature, is evil. And this just this totally rubs the world wrong, right? We, we say this, and, and uh, someone who is uh, not a Christian usually will buck at this at first, uh, unless God convicts and draws and, and works in his heart. But the natural inclination of man is like, no, I'm not basically evil. That's not how I am. But we read that Romans tells us, none is righteous, no, not one. So man is not good. He's not capable of salvation. And we simply must understand how the works of the flesh uh, are ingrained in the nature of man. So what then is the difference between Christians and non-Christians when it comes to seeing these works of the flesh? The difference is grace alone. Grace alone. So now I want you to see what uh, a parallel here in 1 Corinthians 6 for a moment. Go to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse uh, 9 through 11 for just a minute. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 through 11 because Paul uses some of the same language here that he uses with the Colossians, excuse me, the Galatians, but he shows us another, another aspect that's important to recognize. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you just stop there, you've got a bad list and a bad, uh, a bad verdict there because that, we'd all find ourselves in that list. But here's the difference and what's in the difference with believers. And notice what he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, past tense, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That verse brings great joy to me because that, what Paul is describing of those people who are in that sinful state, those works of the flesh, that was their past description. But now that they are in Christ, now that they know Him, what's happened to them in Christ is that they've been washed from those sins, they've been sanctified, set apart, they've been justified in all of this through Christ and through His Spirit who has worked in us. So that's the difference, is that we've been made new in Jesus Christ. And that those things that we see in those lists, they are not what categorize us anymore. Uh, but rather we are seen as in Christ and now have the Spirit of God in us. So the works of the flesh, Paul says, are manifest. They are evident. And uh, we see them in our world. Uh, and we might even still see them sometimes creep up on us as we see that this is a warfare. And we'll get into that here in the latter half of the latter point of this, this message. But notice with me, number two, we see the contrast uh, we see the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. And this is what Paul's contrasting. 
works of the flesh, and then you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we see that there in verse uh, 22 and onward. But notice two things about this. Godly virtues are produced in believers by the Holy Spirit. Godly virtues are produced in the believers by the Holy Spirit. You'll notice in verse 22, he says, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Now that, that's connecting a contrast, just like in Ephesians when he's listing the depravity of man in Ephesians 2, and it's, it's so dark, so glim, we're doomed, right? But then you have those two words, but God, right? But God who is rich in mercy. Uh, and his great love worth, he loved us. He, he's the one who quickened us, made us alive. There's, there's a transition and a contrast of what's happened. So in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Contrasting this, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we recognize something about this, that this is fruit that is of the Spirit. I think that's essential to understand. It is of the Spirit. These virtues flow from the person of the Spirit, not from me. No, I can't try again. You ever have Siri try to take over? There's been several times that I've been preaching, and Siri will uh, speak up. I guess she's trying to correct me, but she's, she's of the flesh anyway. So I don't, I don't listen to her too much. But So these virtues, they flow from the Spirit. They're not of us. They're not in us without Him. Without the Spirit, we don't have these godly virtues. We cannot bear them out. Uh, for example, apples do not produce themselves, do they? What produces apples? Apple trees, right? Uh, without the apple tree, there is no apples. Um, so if the tree is, is dead, it's not going to yield apples, but it's, if it's alive and healthy, it's going to yield apples. Uh, likewise, our sinful nature before the Spirit, what were we? We were dead. He made us alive because of His Spirit, and He indwells us through His Spirit. So the fruit seen are virtues of the Spirit, and essentially what you'll see is that they are virtues seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to watch the life of Jesus day by day, you would see this fruit bore out to perfection. Uh, Some call this a character sketch of the Lord Jesus. Um, And ultimately, what is our aim in our Christian life that the Spirit is growing us and sanctifying us towards? It's to be more like Christ, right? And that's ultimately our final destination. We'll we'll someday enter glorification. I I long for that day. Uh, But even until that day, we are to seek to endeavor to be like Christ. Um, So understand, he is the source of this fruit. John 15, 5, Jesus said this to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this this fruit, we must understand, it's of him. It's not of me. So what is this fruit that's produced? Well, let's look at these briefly for a moment. We find love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, love is chiefly expressed from God, right? It's part of His character. God is love. And uh, this is this true selfless, sacrificial affection uh, that we see in God, but it's something also that is seen in believers. It's something we receive from Him. This selfless, sacrificial affection is known through Christ, it is experienced through Christ, it is implanted in us through Christ. A mark of our new birth is that of love, uh, as John will rightly tell us. If you read 1 John 4 and verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That is an evidence of one's regenerated nature, that they have this love, and they manifest this love. In contrast to that, John says, whoever hates his brother is abiding in darkness. 
Uh, and so love is a mark of the new birth. Um, so it's also a fruit of the Holy Spirit, a love that we express and know. Then we see, secondly, there's joy. Joy. Now, joy is that experience of genuine gladness that is not uh, conditional on circumstances, but it is rooted in spiritual truth. Now, a lot of people's, I think happiness is somewhat different than joy. Happiness largely depends on what's happening or happening to you, right? Um, a, lot of, a lot of people in the world, uh, they, what they claim is joy is just their happiness, and if something happens bad in their life, oh, that happiness is gone. But joy transcends circumstance. Everything doesn't have to be good in my life for me to have joy. In fact, it's sometimes in the darkest moments of life that we experience joy. Uh, and and that's, that's a paradox that's really hard for the world to understand. It's something that we know in Christ. Um, even Christ and his suffering, remember what Hebrews tells us about him and his suffering. He says, who, the, who for the joy that was set before him, he, there, was, there was joy in what uh, was coming through God's redemptive plan. And um, this is what Christ gives us. This is a fruit that a Christian experiences um, in Jesus. John fifteen eleven. Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You can read the context of the whole passage and, and read more about what, Paul, what Jesus is talking. But essentially we find that joy in the Christian life, it is a fruit of the Spirit. So every Christian is to be joyful in the Lord, and that joy comes from the Lord. We see thirdly, thirdly this virtue of peace. Peace is that wholeness and harmony. It's the result, firstly, of our justification with God, right? There is no peace with God until we are justified. Um, Paul wrote in Romans 5, I believe, being justified with, but being justified in Christ, we have peace with God. So we not only have peace with God, as in our relation with Him, but we also have peace in God. Uh, His peace resides within us, giving us a tranquil state that in turn can affect others. You see, the world around us may be raging and chaotic and out of control, but the believer inwardly still has peace. Why is that? Because we know Christ, the one who actually has control of all things. We know Christ, who's the one who holds our eternity in his hand. Uh, you see, this, this peace transcends circumstance, transcends what goes on around us. John 16, I have said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So you, you see, he talks about peace and tribulation in the same sentence. One reason we have peace is because Christ has already overcome all tribulation. So we can have peace in him. So, so peace flows from the Holy Spirit in us. Then we have kindness. Kindness is, is essentially being helpful, kind, and generous. And that's how Christians should be. They should be kind. They should be generous people, gentle people towards others, just as Christ was. Paul next mentions goodness which really is a genuine interest in the welfare of others. We genuinely care about other people. We don't just say that, but we genuinely have a concern and care for others, and that concern and care, which is goodness, flows from the Holy Spirit who abides in us. Next, we have faithfulness. Faithfulness. What is faithfulness? That's essentially being loyal, being reliable, being trustworthy. We all ought to be faithful Christians. It is... Uh, to be reliable both to God and to others. We have gentleness. Now, this, this word is also translated as meekness, which is, is probably a better word to translate this Greek word, but it's essentially a form of humility and selflessness. 
humility and selflessness. So we see this, this trait uh, of meekness and, and gentleness. It's a trait of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Now, we live in a world where self-importance is like the main thing, right? How much self can I promote myself in, in different ways? Uh, but the Christian fruit here is that we are to be selfless. And uh, just as Jesus was meek and lowly in heart, so should the Christian be. And lastly, we have self-control, which is uh, restraint of one's emotions and impulses and, and desires. Now, we find on the opposite spectrum is that the world lives in a state of, of, of lacking self-control. Um, they just want what they want, and they want it now, and, and they're not going to have it any other way. Uh, so self-control is a, is a fruit of the Spirit. So what do we see in this fruit of the Spirit? We see manifestations, really, of Christ-likeness. This is what the Spirit produces in the life of the Christian. And I think it's also important to note that this is, uh, that Paul uses, and he says fruit, and it's in a singular fashion. It's not fruits of the Spirit, as in all of them are individual fruits. It is fruit singular, contrasted to the works of the flesh, which is plural, but the fruit of the Spirit is singular. You see, all of the graces of, this, of the Spirit belong together, which is why it's mentioned that way. The fruit of the Spirit is one whole spiritual life that is rooted in one Spirit, the Spirit of God. So this is, imagine if you would, one cluster of spiritual fruit. And even this list, I would say, is not exhaustive. There's other fruit that goes along with spiritual fruit. You have uh, reference in other New Testaments. You have things like hope and godliness uh, and other things that are listed elsewhere in the New Testament. But Paul lists these here for the Galatians. But what we see with this is that these fruit combat or are contrasted against the works of the flesh. And so with that, Paul says in verse 23, against such there is no law. And you understand that the fruit of the Spirit, they are not a list of rules, but they are virtues produced by the Holy Spirit. They're not a list of rules or laws. They are virtues that are produced by the Spirit in us, in our renewed nature. So uh, every Christian, I believe, will grow in this fruit. I don't believe that uh, every Christian manifests these fruit perfectly the moment they get saved. I believe there is a process in which they grow uh, in manifesting these fruit in their life. But by all means, I believe that they will manifest them, um, and that's important for us to understand. Now, notice with me number three, and we'll, we'll close it up here, but we see the practice of the Christian. This is where we see the, we've seen the contrast here. We've got works of the flesh, we have the fruit of the Spirit, and we know that the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Spirit in us. But that doesn't mean that there is not a practical application and responsibility for the Christian when it comes to this uh, life in Christ, this life in the Spirit. As Paul said earlier in verse 16, what did he say? Walk by the Spirit. Well, that's a command. That's an imperative. That's an application for us to apply. Walk by the Spirit rather than the flesh. So here's a couple things I want to point out to us about this, this application, the practice of the Christian. Number one is this. We must crucify the flesh. We must crucify the flesh. Now, notice what he says here. He says in verse uh, 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, if you go backwards in Galatians to chapter 2 for a moment, and look at what Paul says. Chapter 2 and verse 20, this is a wonderful verse. I love this verse that Paul mentions here. Notice what he says about himself. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul recognized this principle that he was crucified with Christ, but now he also gives this reminder to him in verse 24 that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. So there is a positional sense in which we have been crucified with him. Then there is also a practical sense in which we are called to mortify our flesh, to crucify our flesh. Now, this kind of brings us to the question, are we responsible for our sanctification or is the Spirit? Well, in one, ultimately, the Spirit deserves all the credit. We claim nothing, right? Uh, Philippians 2.13, what did Paul say? Uh, he said, it is God that works in you, both to will and to good of his good pleasure. So we, we know that it's the Spirit in us. But at the same time, there's a responsibility of as Christians to practically apply what he's saying in the realm of mortification, to mortify our flesh, to mortify. I want to see that principle in Colossians 5 for a moment. Colossians 5 and verse, excuse me, there is no, there's not five chapters in Colossians, is there? You guys got to pay attention to me. Uh, Colossians 3, Colossians 3 and verse 5. Colossians 3 and verse 5. And notice what he says here. I use the word mortify. The ESV just says put to death, but uh, some will say mortify. That's just exactly what it means. It means to put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie one to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So what's Paul doing here? He's reminding them this was your past. These things don't just immediately disappear. Mortify them. Put them to death. That's what mortify means, to deaden or cause to seize completely, put to death. Now, we're to recognize the works of the flesh in ourselves. When we recognize the works of the flesh in ourselves, we are to try to eliminate them, to try to abstain from them, to fight against them. Um, you know, often many people go to the doctor for a routine checkup, and doctors sometimes practice what's known as early detection. What's the purpose of that? The purpose is to try to find any problems before they become too serious. Well, there's a spiritual sense, and that's really true of our Christian life. As a Christian, we should frequently have spiritual checkups. We need to be examining our life uh, for the works of the flesh, because if you allow a work of the flesh just to continue on, it can become a serious problem later on. It can take root, and it will be harder uh, to eliminate or to remedy. So I think it's interesting that, that Paul illustrates this by way of crucifixion, crucifying. Think about crucifixion for a moment. He says you've crucified it and we're called to crucify our flesh. Think about crucifixion in a physical sense and maybe then think of it in a spiritual sense. Crucifixion, it was painful. It was painful, wasn't it? Killing off sin is also painful, not to the body but to the soul. It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. Our sinful nature loves the deeds of the flesh, loves it. So to kill off that which our nature loves, our old Adamic nature loves, it can be a painful process. You see, sin is naturally enjoyable. And so to cut off that which is enjoyable is always hard, right? 
You ever try to go on a diet and cut out sugar? Is it easy? No, right? You think of anything, right? You, you think about uh, trying to put yourself into an exercise program when you weren't? Hard. So it's the same thing spiritually. When you're trying to change something that your flesh naturally enjoys, it's a painful thing, but it's a necessary thing. Not only was crucifixion painful, it was also gradual. Gradual. Someone didn't die instantaneous by way of crucifixion. It was prolonged. Now, here's the thing we have to remember. You're not going to be rid of all the works of the flesh in a moment. There's some people that get discouraged when they get saved because then they, they go back and they sin again and they think, oh, man, I thought I was saved. I thought I wasn't supposed to do that. Well, the reality is their flesh is still very much alive and they're at war with that. They need to be taught and, and, and learned in that aspect. So you're not going to be rid of all the works of the flesh in a moment. Mortification of sin it is a slow and painful death to sin, but it must continue on in our Christian life. But not only was crucifixion gradual, it was also final. It was also final. Though it was painful and gradual, there was no coming back from crucifixion except for Christ. He's the only one who did, rising from the dead. Now, here's the good news is that eventually all sin is going to be eliminated. Eventually, we're looking forward to the day in which uh, we are going to be glorified. We're going to be glorified. The Spirit is going to eradicate sin out of our life uh, on that final day. But until we reach that day, we are called upon to mortify sin to walk in the Spirit and wage war against our flesh. Paul said in Romans 8 and verse 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's that scenario. Life and death, what sin does. You see, sin, if, we, if it's unchecked, if we don't repent and we just abide in it, uh, I, I pray that you know Christ and He's convicting you of that. You're not uh, hardening yourself to it. But ultimately... Sin does nothing but bring death. It brings nothing good to your life. It brings misery and shame and destroys the uh, spiritual fervency and enjoyment that you can have with Christ. John Owen rightly said, this is a famous quote, many of you probably heard it, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Uh, That's pretty practical. That's pretty uh, basic. I think there's more to that quote, but that's the short version. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's it's just that simple. So we got to ask ourselves as Christians, I practice killing sin. Do I practice killing sin uh, in my life? Do I practice mortifying and taking note of what is a work of the flesh that creeps up on me that I need to be mindful of and I need to try to really stamp out as much as possible? Letter B, we see that lastly, we must walk in the Spirit. That's what he calls us to do. Verse number 25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit is the same as walking in the Spirit. That's, that's essentially describing what it means to walk in the Spirit. The word used there is a, is a military term. It conveys or speaks of staying in formation. If you look at the military, they're to stay in formation. They're to keep in step with each other and how they have been instructed and how they've been uh, taught. And that principle is true in walking in the Spirit. He's our leader. He's our commander. He's the one who has given us life, and He's the one who convicts us. He's the one who uh, encourages us, sustains us, and, and leads us and directs us. So we're to submit to Him in every step of our lives. And how can we rightly walk in the Spirit? It's a good question. Well, essentially, I think we need, as Christians, we need to be immersing our life and yielding our life to that which is of the Spirit. A Christian's going to have a hard time walking in the Spirit if he just completely ne- neglects that which is of the Spirit. 
neglecting the scriptures, neglecting prayer, neglecting worship with the people of God, um, neglecting spiritual influences. So we, we're, we're called to submit ourselves day by day, our thoughts, our actions, and words to that which would be of the Spirit. And how do we best know that which is of the Spirit? Through the book the Spirit has given us, the inspired Word of God. It's been inspired by Him. So understand that we'll never sanctify or grow without the Holy Spirit. We must continue in Him. As, as Paul said to the Galatians earlier in chapter 3, verse 3, he said, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, you get saved by the Spirit, and then you continue the rest of the way without Him? No. Uh, it's, it's, we, we're, we're utterly dependent on the Spirit of God in our Christian life in this warfare of the Spirit and the flesh. Uh, and as we walk in the Spirit, He's the one who transforms us uh, into the holy people that we're called to be. I like this quote by J.I. Packer. He says, Holiness is the naturalness of the spiritually risen man, just as sin is the naturalness of the spiritually dead man. And in pursuing holiness by obeying God, the Christian actually follows the deepest urge of his own renewed being. That's a somewhat deep quote, but I think it's very practical. And Paul reminds them in verse 26, he says, says, says to them again, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He essentially points out a few fleshly traits that they specifically were dealing with in Galatia uh, that he wanted them to try to put to death and avoid. Uh, so this, this contrast of flesh and spirit is one that we as Christians, we need to be taught it. And we often need to be reminded of it uh, because it is an ongoing thing that we deal with every day of our life. And I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit, aren't you? I wouldn't be anywhere without the Holy Spirit. I, I give all credit to Him. It is Him who has saved me. It is Him who has regenerated me and uh, continues to mold me. None of us are perfect. Uh, I, wish, I wish others outside would understand that we Christians, we're not perfect people. The only difference is grace. And uh, we're a work in progress uh, to being more like Christ. And we look forward to that on the final day. Uh, but I hope this lesson has encouraged you and uh, maybe challenged you. Uh, somewhat in your Christian walk as well.